Join brilliant minds as they come together to tackle the biggest healthcare problems facing the globe. The content in this series is taken from the 2018 conference in London. Coming up is Professor the Lord Darcy on what's causing the biggest problems in the NHS and how we can reverse it. Enjoy. Those certainly from outside the UK will probably know the United Kingdom back in the 1948, which was post-war, championed universal health coverage. In actual fact, universal health coverage, or at least the NHS, is part of, certainly it's the fabric of our society. No one will ever dare challenge the NHS, its principles, its values, not just the people who fund it, in other words, the taxpayer, but more importantly, those who work within the health service, the 1.2 million people. Nye Bevan famously said, as you remember, 5th of July, 1948, that the collective principle asserts of any society which legitimately calls itself civilized is to have a universal health coverage. So we see this as a human right rather than anything. And that principle remains, as I said earlier, I'm sure there are physicians here like me in this room. You also might be interested to hear, in actual fact, it was a politician who brought the NHS together, and it wasn't the clinicians. And if you famously go back to Hansard in the House of Lords, you will see some of the debates. And he famously once said, I had to stuff the doctor's mouths with gold to get them to join the NHS in those days. So it was a serious political challenge That is the type of leadership that is required if you're really trying to transform health systems in lower and middle-income countries, and I will come back to that. Now, you're celebrating your 30th. You can't ignore that the NHS celebrated its 70th this year. So you add 70 and 30, you're talking about a centenary. But uh, so let me tell you something about the 70th anniversary. Now, on the 60th anniversary, I happened to be a health minister, and I was in the dungeon. So I did a, uh, that's when I joined the dark side. I did a, uh, a review of the NHS called High Quality Care for All. The main theme of that review is to change the mindset, politically, but also within the NHS, that it's quality that matters. It's quality that wakes up in the morning and brings us to work, not the quantity. We had 10 years of a tremendous increase in funding with 400 targets. So sadly, the targets became the end rather than the mean to the end. And that completely switched off the service. So it was recapturing the hearts and minds of the service in focusing on quality. And I famously said at the time, quality should be the organizing principle of the NHS and nothing else should matter. So 10 years later, which is this July, I decided to revisit what has been achieved in 10 years. And those of you who live in the UK, if you've read the papers over the last year, you will certainly come to the conclusion that the NHS is in crises and is about to collapse. So my first task was to see, have we achieved anything in 10 years since my report? And second is, what are the recommendations we should make to government at the time? And probably all of this is history now because the recommendations of the government came about 3.4%. In cancer, the one your survival has been up since 2008, mental health, the IAPT targets were met. 
The suicide rates are down, primary care, believe it or not, whatever you hear about primary care, the quality outcome framework scores were higher, harm-free care is higher, social care, as long as you get access to social care, you're okay. But getting into the social care system is nearly impossible. So, to our surprise, in 10 years down the line, if you look at some quality outcomes, they were much better than they were when I was a Minister of Health in 2008. But access was a significant challenge. If you look at, at growth, the tsunami, which we again talked about two, three weeks ago, post Lehman Brothers crash, was in 2008. Lehman Brothers crashed that September. We knew in the NHS that the austerity wouldn't hit us for at least three, four years. So we knew that the tsunami wouldn't reach the shores of the NHS for at least three to four years. Plenty of time to get ready. Sadly, we didn't. So from 2013-14, we've had no growth. If you look at the predictions for the next 10 years, GDP growth, we'll expect it to be 153 billion if we just take expenditure in the NHS based on GDP. If you look at on demand, which is the red, is 183 billion, which we came, if we go back for 30 years, talking about growth, historically the NHS had 1.5% of our GDP growth. Including the major government and the recession then, we still had 1.5% GDP growth. So our recommendations were 3.5% growth. That was, we prematurely launched that because there was a serious political debate going on between the two famous addresses of number 10 and number 11. And the weekend, they were talking about 2.9% growth. And we think the 3.5 pushed them to a 3.4, which was announced by the prime minister on that Sunday. We also said, start walking the walk rather than talking the talk in, come in terms of public health. And this, the burden, the cost of the public health burden uh, in, in this century, mostly around obesity, alcohol, and smoking. And again, reintroducing some of the interventions in terms of sugar tax, extending it from sugary drinks or fizzy drinks to shakes, for example. So sets of recommendations there. We also re, uh, uh, reintroduced the concept that quality should remain the, quality, uh, the organizing principle as we move in the next decade, empowering clinicians' improvement at a local level and have the control systems uh, in terms of regulation a little bit uh, uh, downgraded because I happen to be one of those who does not believe that regulation improves quality. Regulation is there to ensure that core standards are met. I have a license to practice, but regulation never improves quality. The only way to improve quality is to improve the front, empower the frontline staff and talk about quality being the center of what they do. They're the people who will change and drive quality improvements rather than a regulator. Main emphasis of convergent science in this country, we're still the second in the world when it comes to publication and citation. How do we maintain that? But more importantly, how do we change an NHS in which has been very slow translating the output of the life sciences industry in this country, which is very strong, into uh, not just economic benefit, but health benefit to our own citizens. 
Social care, I'm just going to touch on this point, because if, uh, if Bevan was here 70 years later, he will probably come to the conclusion that with the aging population we have, which is something we should celebrate, by the way, we need to think through the care side of the system, not just the health side of the system. You know, examples in that report, for example, is loneliness. Loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That is the harm of loneliness. So the idea of access to social care, and you know one in 10 people in this country now go into catastrophic financial uh, place at the end of their life, more or less, because of their social care needs. So the idea of making nursing care at home, shifting it from means-tested, which is what social care is in this country, to free at the point of need. We think that the savings from that will be around three billion for the NHS. The whole cost of this will be about 10 billion. So back to universal health coverage and where it is in the world. Actual fact, you don't see a single document published now from, w from WHO in which it doesn't have UHC in it, which is a good thing. But how do you structure a universal health coverage? The principle might be the same as 1948, but there are few issues that I think should be in the mindset of political leaders and policymakers in many of these countries that you constantly interact with, one of which was a publication we did recently by David Nicholson, who was the CEO of the NHS. And Sir David led this piece of work called the World Innovation Summit for Health. It's available. Essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a 10 point output for someone with a low attention span called the health minister who could take and implement in terms of a universal health coverage. I'm just going to give you the highlight for it. Uh, these are the principles if you want to have a successful universal health coverage implementation. Stakeholder support, absolutely critical. Top political support is vital. Go back to Bevan. Without Bevan, this would not have happened. The political resistance by the medical community was quite strong then. Public support, which is always there as long as you balance that with the taxation, the governance, is there a strong institution? Uh, is there a proper civil service? It's a proper commissioner when it comes to universal health coverage. How do you monitor progress? The resources, I think healthcare workers, which is something you have an interest in, how do you build that capacity? And finally, how do you distribute medicines and equipments? This is the famous slide that most of you will know. How do you extend the coverage from the few essentially some will call as universal health coverage. In actual fact, how do you extend that to the whole population? How do you extend the services across that population? And finally, how do you finance that system? Many countries sadly do call themselves as systems of universal health coverage, but that is rarely the case. You have segmentation of that population with different coverage, as you will see. Uh, the wealthy who have an insurance cover, the uncovered middle is usually where the big challenge is. And the poor gets a fairly minimum and a basic service. And moving that into a whole population, including health coverage, is what I will define it as a universality of coverage. Wonderful example from Thailand to introduce a universal health coverage, looking at 
uh, protecting families from financial hardship, and you can clearly see the drop as they introduced that in 2002, back see where it is in 2009 after a universal health coverage. There's no question, you can look at this in a number of different ways. Uh, taxation is what we've chosen to do. Mandatory insurance is another one, which is what the US tried to do. I mean, Obama's leadership, which was about 60 years after Bevan, sadly has been dismantled by the current incumbent uh, in, in the White House. There are other ways, and we've looked at all of these, out-of-pocket payments, co-pay, doesn't work, voluntary insurance, or external sources. Nigel Crisp this year is looking at universal health coverage and the role of non-medical, in other words, clinical support in terms of nursing, allied healthcare professionals, and I'm sure some of you in this room would have contributed to his report. This will be published on the 13th to the 15th of November, again at WISH, highlighting the role of uh, healthcare, non-medical healthcare professionals in extending the coverage in terms of universal health coverage. Uh, community health workers, Matt Harris, I don't know if he's here, but I'm sure he will be speaking later in our department, has done a lot of work in Brazil. This is a, a family health strategy out of Brazil, and you can clearly see the role of the community health workers as part of teams, and these teams uh, include management, uh, they screen the population they're looking at, immunization, breastfeeding, health promotion, household data. And these different teams, the core teams, would be out there providing the service provision end of UHC. Having coverage without provision is not a universal health coverage. I'm going to finish off to talk a few, few more slides about what we can learn from the areas that you work in. And I've developed this interest for the last three or four years in looking at the whole concept of frugal innovations. Uh, I'm a converter. All my academic life working in this august institution has been in robotics. A robot nowadays will cost you anywhere between half a million to 1.5 million just having the infrastructure in your operating theater. Uh, to do a robotically assisted surgery, whether that happens to be cancer or colorectal, or mostly it's used in, uh, in uh, prostate surgery. But when you go down to the southern hemisphere and to the east, you come some wonderful examples of what they will describe frugal, frugal innovations, and they're mostly process innovations, and what I like is their principles. What is the alternative cheaper solution but maintaining the same standards that the West has in terms of the delivery of healthcare. Uh, this was a piece of work that I did with a few colleagues. Uh, Victor Zhao was one of them, who's now the president of the National Academy of Medicine. We looked at examples of frugality, not just in lower and middle income countries, but also in the high income countries, in terms of disruptors who could really transform healthcare delivery at a significantly cheaper cost, but the same quality. A worthwhile uh, exercise to read. And some of those, the most exciting ones, did come from lower and middle income countries. I think the principles should be taught in every postgraduate curriculum in the NHS, because 
we have this thing, the more expensive the better, and I think we also need a co-education with the public. The innovation, from their perspective, must result with a world-class quality. It must have a significant reduction in price. It has to be scalable. It has to be affordable. I send this NICE to the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, to tell them maybe that's another way of looking at a quality or a value creation. And there are wonderful opportunities in here. As I said before, it's all about process innovation. Sadly, what NICE does is a quality assessment of a new drug or a new device, rather than a change of process. Changing process or process innovation, which is quite common in industry, just take Toyota. Toyota doesn't have anything special inside that car. It works, it makes money, because they've absolutely brought in all the process innovations into the car assembly lines. And you see some of these examples of this uh, in terms of labor-saving technologies in Mexico. Uh, 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 the medical home, which is you, get a, you pay, I think, a $5 extra on your subscription to mobile phone, and you can get access to a general practitioner in terms of uh, from a call center, uh, and I'm sure that will com convert into a digital application. The family health program, which I described to you in Brazil, costing about 30 to $50 per capita, really uh, bringing in nurses, community health workers, which I mentioned earlier. And you don't have to go far. This is Sweden. In Sweden, 40% of the patients on dialysis get home dialysis, 40%. That, that is huge figure in contrast to the number of patients that are on home dialysis here in the United Kingdom. Believe it or not, the home dialysis kit is a product from UK PLC. It's a British product. Uh, and I remember going in a number of different uh, meetings in, uh, uh, as part of UKTI to promote UK's life sciences, me trying to flog this machine and you come back to the NHS, it's not actually used in the NHS. A wonderful example of we exporting a frugality in which the Swedes are using it, but not necessarily implementing it in our own country. I'm going to finish off with our own arrogance when it comes to uptake of innovation within the concept of frugality. This is a study we looked at different countries, but more importantly, we asked the uh, the clinicians in England, where do you get your references in terms of continual professional development, in terms of innovation? Where do you read and what do you look at? And you can see the majority of them rarely look at what is coming out of middle and lower income countries or India. So there's a big gap or a certainly a perception gap on quality when it, looking at the southern and eastern hemisphere and picking up some ideas. Aravind is another example. I don't know how many of you have been in India. I've been there, I've seen it, $35 on a cataract surgery. The only problem I have with Aravind is why is it just one hospital in India? Why has it not diffused? That's another challenge we need to look into. The challenge of diffusion is not just an issue in the uh, high-income countries. It seems to be an issue in lower and middle-income countries too. We're just about to start a, a trial using a, uh, this drill, which is a uh, 
I think it's in from Africa. Again, this is Matt Harris's work and his group. They're looking at bringing this into Chelsea or Westminster. We spent about six months telling the orthopedic guys, it takes six months to talk to an orthopedic surgeon, that this drill is as good as the one they're using. In actual fact, it's the same inside components. What we need to do is just to put the cover and the sheet, which is the sterile sheet, and we shared with them randomized control trials in terms of outcomes, in terms of infection rates, and we hope to start this trial soon. And also, without forgetting the, the mosquito uh, uh, mesh, which is essentially, I think if I'm correct, it's about 0.5% of the cost of a mesh we currently use in our operating theater. And you probably have read in the papers in the last week or so, there's a bit of an uproar after a television program that highlighted that there are many patients having serious post-operative problems after having a groin mesh inserted. So the mosquito mesh might be something we may look at also in the future. The problem with these things is the regulatory framework. Regulation is there to make sure we are safe. I agree with that, but taking this type of stuff through the regulatory framework does take time. So on that note, I'll finish off again with a, another quotation from Bevan. You can never stop reading about Bevan. I tend to do this on decade-to-decade -decade basis. I spent uh, 2008 reading a couple of his books. Didn't realize there are a few more books that I read this summer. It still remains the champion of universal health coverage, and in many of us who work in the NHS, a, ch a champion politician who really made a difference. Thanks very much for your time. This is the THET podcast on the Medics Academy Network. If you'd like to learn more about THET, you can find our website at thet.org.